as Lynn said, the reading today is from the um, Gospel book of Luke, chapter 16. And Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job, and I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had actually, oh, because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been, dis- not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. (laughs) The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Uh, for this week. Um, some of you might know I, I'm actually enrolled in Bible College and I've been up in Brisbane a day a week most of the year um, and I've just been doing a unit on Christian ethics and we had uh, given an assignment to write a talk um, on the topic of how Christians in a wealthy country like Australia uh, should think about their wealth and their possessions and and um, those kind of things. And so, given that's what I was doing most of this week, it's what, we've, what, what we're um, looking at this week as well. So, that's why we're diverting away from Genesis. Now, in your community groups, um, I've still prepared a, um, a, a community study guide, uh, part of the community study guide, like a study that goes over Genesis chapters 20 and 21, um, which I'm not going to preach on, uh, at all, but um, if you look at that next through this week, then you'll um, keep up with the Genesis stuff, and at the same time, we'll hook back into Genesis uh, next week with Isaac up the mountain on the altar. So that's where we're headed. Um, that's what we're doing today. Let me pray for us, and we'll get on with it. Loving Father, we thank you so much. Uh, just we thank you that all your words speak to us. We thank you that we've got this time this morning 
to think about to think about your goodness to us, uh, Lord, to think about what you've given us, and Lord, think about what you've given us most of all in the Lord Jesus, in the promise of eternal life. So, Lord, please um, use your word this morning uh, to, to further transform us into the likeness of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. A few Sundays ago, after church, Bob and I took off up to Brisbane uh, to catch the NRL Magic Round. And a few other people were up there as well on this day. And um, it, was, it was a bit of fun, but like any, any going out to something, it cost a little bit of money. I think the ticket was about 80 bucks, which I still haven't paid Bob back for. But anyway, um, you know, the pies were expensive, the burgers were overpriced, the, the bottles of drink and things like that. If, if I cough up the money to Bob... I think it would have been an outing that we, you know, I would have been out of pocket about 150 bucks for, for a Saturday of a Sunday arvo of entertainment. It's kind of the going rate these days, isn't it? And I was just thinking there was 40,000 people in Suncorp Stadium. There obviously is no COVID there, and it's just going on. Uh, 40,000 people there, but it wasn't just 40,000 people. It was the third consecutive day of this festival-like weekend of rugby league. And I'm, if I'm out of pocket 150 bucks, and I'm just one of 40,000 on the third of three days, there's a lot of money going around this place, isn't there? Not only that, I wasn't like a bunch of the people around me who were seemingly making half-hour trips to the bar, which were probably 40 or 50 dollars a shout, parting with their hard-earned dollars. Now, what happened this particular uh, night at the football is partway through. Uh, actually, I think it was between the second and the third game, um, they brought six fans that somehow had entered a competition and they, they put them in between the goalposts and they lined them up there and then six cheerleaders ran out and they each held a... It was noisy. They each held a briefcase. A bit like, do you remember deal or no deal? See how much money's inside? So they had numbers one to six and these blokes, all they had to do for the game was to choose a number and... It was said that one of them, you know, inside there was $25,000 and they'd get to walk home with it. Now, that's all well and good, but here's the really interesting bit. All the blokes there, they all looked about between 25 and 50. So they, they looked working age men. You'd say they'd probably have a, um, a job to go, to go to the next day. It was a Sunday. But... Um, the real surprising thing that struck, stood out to me was that they interviewed each of the guys. They said, oh, you know, what have you enjoyed about the football? Who do you go for? They all had jerseys on and things like that. But they all asked them this same question. What would you do with the money? What would you do with the money? Now, here's the thing that blew me away. Five out of the six guys all basically said, I'd shout my night mates a night out on the town. Did you hear how much I said the prize money was? $25,000. That sounds like a pretty, you know, I'm sitting there thinking 150 bucks is a pretty big day out for me, a few, you know, more burgers than I'd normally indulge in. How much money can you possibly blow in clubs and bars and nightclubs? But I kind of, as I think about that, and I knew that I had to give this talk eventually, I was thinking, doesn't that reveal just kind of an attitude that Aussies have toward money. Money kind of, you know, 
it represents something to us, doesn't it? It represents the opportunity for maybe indulging in pleasure. The sixth guy, he didn't say he was going to go out on the town. He said he was going to buy a new car, which might be where, you know, $25,000, that might be where you would land with, with a windfall like that. But it, it just kind of revealed, I think, this, this attitude that kind of is just out there. It's, it's kind of like the, the water that we swim in. Now, maybe you wouldn't, I hope that you wouldn't, go and blow 25000 on a night out on the town. That seems pretty excessive. But maybe for you that's a fair bit of a new wardrobe or a new TV and new gadgets in your home, a new phone. Not an overseas holiday at the moment, but maybe park it in the bank for when that can happen. Maybe it's a new boat or camper or trailer or fill in the blank. We often, I don't know about you, but I've often found myself thinking, what would I do with that kind of money? Like it's, it's a question that we can normally answer. Now this passage that's in front of us, Luke chapter 16, this, this passage right at the heart of it in verse 13 there, it tells us that money is something that we can find ourselves loving. Money is something that Jesus says we can love. Now the blokes at the football, they got novelty oversized checks. You've seen those before. But we don't picture them hugging and kissing them. We understand that that's not what loving money means. Loving money is loving what money can do. The blokes at the football, indulging their senses in pleasure. But maybe for other people, money means power. Money means freedom, options, to live where I want, to go where I want, to think how I'll get there. And it really doesn't matter how much money you've got as to how you think about money, does it? Because the people that have it can have this attitude and the people that don't really have it can want it because they think that it will do this for them. It can be something that we love. Not just loving for what it is, but for what it stands for. And this is the water that I reckon we really swim in. That's a picture, isn't it? We're often unaware, like a fish. Ask a fish about water, what can they tell you? They, don't, they can't tell you anything because they're in it. It's, it's this, it can be the same for us. It's a good analogy, isn't it? The water that you and I swim in, can, there's so many things that we can just be oblivious to, not properly aware of because it's so encompassing of us. It's all around us. I just remember back, as soon as I got a proper paying job that didn't just supplement the bit of youth allowance that Centrelink could flick me, I quickly realised what a consumer I was. You know, all of a sudden, a little bit of money in my bank account meant freedom to solve problems. If I felt bad about myself, well, I could go and buy something, maybe a new gadget or some new clothes or something to eat. If I have to solve a problem, I could just go to Bunnings or Kmart where there was pretty affordable options and I can just sort it out myself, replace whatever I needed. This went next level when Tara and I, back in Armidale, we bought a house. And in that house, there's no landlord. We could do whatever we wanted. The only restriction we had was how much money we could spend on it. And that's crazy how much you can control that, isn't it? From the, the colour of the flowers that you're going to walk past and smell to the colour of the walls inside, to the shape of the rooms and things like this. See, it's really an endless cycle. 
sit down with an architect and design a house. <laughs> it's just, you know, where do you draw the line? You're only often limited by time and money. And even money isn't that hard to come by. Now, I don't want to be insensitive if money is a real struggle for you, but really, in our country, people are trying to give us finance all the time. Go and buy a car. They'll be talking to you about how you might use their finance. You go to a shop now, it's not just put it on lay-by, but it's after pay it. Walk out with the product and you can just pay it off in time. We often, if we really want to, can have what we want pretty much as we want it. We've got to hear what Jesus says about money because it's, a, it's, a, it's dangerous water that we swim in. And it's not just the love of money that Jesus talks about at the heart of this verse. What he's actually saying is that it's the kind of love that we ought to have for God. It's actually treating money as if it were God. Think about all those things I've just said. The kind of problem solving that we can do. The kind of control that we can have. That's the language that we ought to be using about God. God is the one in control. God is the one who deals with our problems. Jesus is very clear. What he communicates through all of this is pretty much what he states clearly in verse 13. So let me just start there by reading it. This is verse 13 of what we just read. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other, you cannot serve both God and money. It's a very black and white statement from Jesus. And for Christians, for us Christians who live in a very material world, us Aussie Christians who live in a pretty affluent society, we have Jesus making a very clear distinction that it's actually a conscious choice to not allow money to have the place of God in our hearts. So how does Jesus get here and why is he talking about this? Well, this is the parable that he tells. And it's a parable that's really kind of like an illustrating parable. And, you know, on first reading, you can kind of find yourself going, hang on, did Jesus just say that? What's he actually saying here? So in this parable, we're introduced to a rich master and a manager who works for the master, and this manager obviously has a, a fair amount of responsibility over the rich man's wealth. We've all got that so far. Now, it turns out that the manager has been wasteful with what he's done with the master's resources. You know, put it on the company card when you go down to the shops to buy whatever you need, all that kind of stuff. He's been indulgent. In, in fact, the chapter 15 of Luke is where we read about the prodigal son. You know that story? The man had two sons. The youngest son says, give me all my wealth. Give me what my, I'll get for my inheritance. You know the story. When you look at how it's written, this manager is basically done what the youngest son did. Just blown it, squandered it, used it to indulge himself. And so the problem is clear. Because he's done this, but he, ha he has had no right to do this, he's done it with the master's money, he's going to get the sack. And that's what verse 3 tells us. 
But he's got one last task before that happens, and that's to give an account. It's some kind of auditing of the books here. And, and so this is what he does. Thinking, you know, I'm going to be unemployed soon, and I've got nothing to lose. If I go and do a whole bunch of favours to all these people that owe money... Well, if I can cut down there what they've got to pay back, then maybe when I'm you know, unemployed, maybe these guys will remember how I looked after them and they'll look after me. They'll remember how I looked after them and I might have a bed in their home or I might get a job with one of those guys. And that's basically what this guy is thinking. That's, that's what drives him to do what he does. In verses 5 and 7... It talks about how he does it, and it's kind of obscure to us. I'm not sure when you last dealt in four-figured sums on bushels of wheat. I don't know if you've had to do those kind of tax returns lately, but when you do the maths, just listen to the extent of the favours that are being dished out. They're in realms of annual wages. It's big dollars. So 450 gallons of olive oil was around the equivalent in value of one year's wage. 200 bushels of wheat is around the equivalent of three years' wages. And Jesus only gives two examples, but I actually think he's implying that he did this with everyone. So he's really setting himself up, isn't he? He's really setting himself up. He's done very well for himself. Now, this is where the story just kind of goes, hang on, Jesus, did you just say that? Because... Jesus asserts that the manager has a reason to commend the manager. Sorry, the master has a reason to commend the manager. Look at verse 18 with me. Sorry, look at verse 8 with me. When someone... I'm on the wrong passage. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Can you see that? It's kind of odd. Why did Jesus just say, what, how could that be where this story lands? But it kind of reminds me, have you seen the Oceans movies, like Oceans 11, 12 and 13, where basically a pack of thieves rip off a bunch of casinos? And it's kind of all morally you know, obscure anyway, because are casinos really upstanding, moral, law-abiding citizens? Well, you only need a few royal commissions to work out that they're probably not. And at the end of the very last of those movies... The casino owner who has been completely ripped off and hacked into and whatever he's been robbed from kind of just nods at the guys for how clever they've been in doing it. And that's kind of what you see at the end of of, of this here. And that's the point that Jesus wants us to focus on. See, it's really a sneaky ploy to spare himself the discomfort of digging or begging. So if it does sound unlike Jesus to commend, commend what he's doing, it's because it is. He's not commending what he's doing. Jesus isn't saying this, that we should be like this guy in his dishonesty. But Jesus does say that there's something to model in this. And what that is, is that, that he will stop at nothing to ensure security beyond the day. Now, in light of this, Jesus says in verse 9 
something. And remember, he's speaking to his disciples here. Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. See, Jesus understands, and there's kind of an established understanding here, that there's going to come a day when worldly wealth is worthless, when it's actually got, it can't do anything. It will no longer have any value, but being found in and belonging to God, that will count for everything. There's a certainty about that day that's coming. So Jesus essentially says, a disciple of his will use whatever wealth and means that they possess now in a way that leverages for themselves and for others the opportunity to enjoy that everlasting home. See, what verse 13 proposes as a challenge that we can't serve two masters, well, verse 9 actually says to us quite positively, we can't serve two masters, earthly wealth will end, but what we've got, we've got to use, and we've got to use it in the right way. Just very quickly, the Bible never teaches that a part of, of being a Christian, part of being a follower of Jesus, means adopting a life of poverty. We're not called to do that. There's a passage that I printed on the front of our service sheets today from 1 Timothy that actually says it pretty clearly. We're not to adopt poverty, but nor, if we are wealthy, if we are rich, we can't really remain rich while following Jesus. There is that one example of the rich guy that comes and wants to you know, justify himself before Jesus. And Jesus said, he says, what have I got to do to follow you? And Jesus says, give it all away. Where we actually have to land is basically in the middle. If we are really rich and we're following Jesus, we, we can't remain rich because if we're obedient to Jesus, we'll be very generous and we'll be giving that away. And, and by virtue of that, we won't remain wealthy. And so that's what you see tied up in all these verses here. Jesus will challenge the love of money and will challenge in a moment, the Pharisees, who, who actually were told love money, they exemplify the love of money. But what he's done here first with this parable is given this provocative story that commends for his disciples to, to value the gospel so much, the gospel that's being entrusted to them, that they would use all of their God-given means, which very much includes their wealth, to bring people into the kingdom. Now, how does that challenge your usual relationship with money? With your usual relationship with your wealth and your possessions? How does that challenge your view of the kingdom? I think we are swimming in a world, we live in a culture that sees money as one of our primary means of creating happiness. We're told that. 
We're encouraged in that. So what does it look like for you and I to see our possessions and our personal wealth as both God-given, so it's not really ours, it's actually God's, and what's it look like for that to be repurposed in light of Jesus to become a means of growing the kingdom? That is light in darkness, isn't it? A community of people whose, whose lives are transformed by Jesus, whose wealth is transformed by Jesus. It's really hard to talk about this because we don't like to talk about money. We don't like to talk about our... our it seems like a very personal thing to talk about. Jesus, Jesus here is very clear. It's both an encouragement and a warning. You can't serve two masters. So if you were to look, honestly look at your life and realise that that's really where your hope is, then you've got to listen to Jesus. But also, if you're kind of like thinking, how, how am I meant to engage in, in growing God's kingdom? I think that verse 9 really says something to us. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed. In. It's not buying friends. It's not a rent-a-crowd kind of situation. But it's all those things that are unpacked, not in this passage, but throughout the rest of that kind of transformative work of the gospel, particularly toward generosity. Particularly toward generosity. Have you taken heed of Jesus' instructions in these verses? What is it that needs to change, that might need to change in your attitude toward money? Remember, this is about the positive act of what you do with the much that you've been given. That's the parallel that Jesus makes, isn't it? Jesus is assuming that, that his disciples understand that the goalposts, because of Jesus, the goalposts for living have changed. The goalposts have changed toward a mission to see people rescued. And that's true for you. Your goalposts in life have been changed by Jesus. Your aspirations. Jesus doesn't tell you about your need to get rid of wealth. It's not something that he's teaching. I've already said that. But he's already said, he says very clearly that we must not let wealth take the place of God in our hearts. Money is potent like that. And as Jesus says that, verse 13, that you can't serve two masters, he seems to have the Pharisees in mind there. Luke tells us in verse 14 that they sneer in response to him. He tells us that they sneer because they are the lovers of money. They end up serving as an example of loving money instead of loving God. And with verse 13 and 14 in view, we can understand what Jesus is saying, that we can't serve both God and money. The Pharisees, they loved money. Where does that leave them in relationship with God? Well, that's what verse 15 says. It says they were, um, they were known for justifying themselves in the eyes of others. They don't let God's word read them. They use God's word to justify their sin. In this case, it's their 
love of money, their greed. And so if you're really not sure where this lands for you, that's the test. Is your reaction to that question, how do you use your wealth, a defensive one? A defensive one that says, oh, no, look, I know that, but the Bible doesn't say anything much about whether you have to be rich or not. Les even said that in his sermon, so it doesn't really apply to me that much. And that's why, really, we've got to focus on verse 13. We need to heed most that warning from Jesus and that encouragement to love and serve God and the warning not to treat money in that. In doing that, we're warned not to pretend. The Pharisees, they were great at pretending that they were generous. Earlier in Luke chapter 11, Jesus said, Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kind of garden herds. You know, they're tithers, that's great. But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. The reference is Luke 11.42, if you want to write it down. What Jesus says to the Pharisees should really drive home that we cannot pretend before God in this area of our life because God knows our hearts. And so as we're hearing this and as we wrap this up, what needs to be undone in your life? What's more shaped by the pattern of this world when it comes to wealth in your life? It might not always be the most obvious thing. Maybe you give regularly to church. That's great. You might be generous in that you always take your turn shouting a coffee or a beer when you catch up with someone. You might make your donation here or there. It is June after all. You're going to get a good tax deal um, if you get in before the end of the month. You might, you know, loan your car out to people that need it or put people up at your house. You could even have one of those compassion sponsor childs on your fridge, clearly on display. We can do all that stuff, but God knows our heart. The gospel-shaped answer to being wealthy is not finding a path to poverty. It's using what you have in a gospel-shaped way. And the point is very clear in this whole chapter. God doesn't need our money from us, but he entrusts it to us that we are putting it to good gospel use. Your relationship with money, it matters. It's hopefully more than clear that it's entrusted to you by God and it's foolish to ever put it in the place of God. So how are you going to Go back into the water that we swim in. We very well could go down you know, and have lunch at the surf club and bump into the bunch of guys that are blowing their 25k, they've made it a fishing trip in Evans Head for the weekend. We could bump into people like that. We could think the rest of our weekend is going to be filling in you know, things that are just kind of there to make us happy. We could very well be calling into Bunnings sometimes over the end of the weekend to kind of put the next luxury improvement on our homes. And there are only a few ways, aren't they? See, we're in a society where we're confronted and pulled toward the love of money all the time. So let's make sure we are doing what Jesus says, that we're people that use our worldly wealth 
to gain friends for ourselves so that when it is gone, because it will be gone, we will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Let's pray to that end. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks so clearly. Our Lord, we pray for this world. We pray that, that it would just be revealed to us and through us and to the people around us that, that money is not a, a God that loves us back or that, that really serves us. Lord, that we can't control things, and particularly with our wealth. Lord, we pray for that transforming work of your gospel, Lord, that we would be increasingly generous people, generous in our giving to the church, generous in our giving to our neighbours, to our caring for people, Lord, that we would be transformed more and more to be seen as people that don't love money, that do love you, and that properly use what you've given us. And so, Father, I just pray that wherever this lands for us, whether it's an encouragement for a decision that we've made with our wallet, or whether it's a rebuke, Lord, I just ask that we would know your grace and we would know your encouragement. Lord, we would know that we can't serve two masters. And Lord, as we do serve you, we both do it in response to the great love that you've shown us. And Lord, we do it knowing that you love us back. So Spirit, apply this to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.